Good morning, Bokir Tov to everybody. Welcome back. Good to be learning again. Today we're going to be uh, learning Le'ilu Nishmas Chaim Pesach Ben Mordechai. That's Chaim Weinstein, a 17th yard site for Baruch's brother. And Ms. Hashem, our learning should be as a chus for his neshama. Baruch's the yard site's actually... Which, what day is it? Today. Today. Boy, boy, our learning should be Le'ilu Nishmasai. Nishmasai Eden. There are no sources today. We're going to be actually thinking and, and, and looking aloud. This is a topic now. I know that people are getting nervous about the amount of topics that I've been talking about, about Uganda. <laughs> Why Uganda out of all countries? Maybe it's maybe the rabbi's yearning for his homeland. Maybe the rabbi's thinking back to African days. No, actually, the reason why this is so relevant to specifically this week is because this has a very, very fascinating historical twist to it. The Uganda plan. Let's go back a little bit in history to understand why not Uganda. Let's take a trip back to Eastern Europe in the days of... This is fine. If this is good for you, I think this should be pretty clear. The days of Eastern Europe in the days leading up to 1903. What it did is, very just a very briefly, just a survey of some of the events that were going on in Europe in between the 1870s and the 1905. And what I did is, just as a, as a, a very simple thing, is I, I was fortunate enough, when I lived in Chicago, there was a wonderful family, Danny and Rosalie Novick. When uh, his father passed away, he let me go through his library. And I had half an hour to look through. I found a safer a set of sorim called Sefer Amoadim, written by Dr. Levinsky. Can't find it in print today. Can't find it anywhere, basically. Very fascinating sorim. And he has, a, in this section, he has a section called Yemei Moed Vizikoron Mikhurban Nechurban. He talks about the history before we get to the Medina, he talks about the history of what was going on in Europe at the time. So what I want to just give you is just a survey of simply what happened in the span of 30 years, only in the months of Nisan and Iyar. Just the months of Nisan and Iyar. This is forgetting everything else. This is forgetting past 1905 and before 1870. 1871, Odessa, Cholamoid Pesach. There was the first pogrom in Odessa. There were killings, maimings, destroyings. The first of the kind in Odessa, 1881. Forced, they forced the, the, um, to, they attacked the Jews in their homes. There was, it spread to 42 local surrounding villages, the, the Kiev um, pogrom. 1881, the second Odessa pogrom. Jewish Jew students put up a fight. The, the, uh, the, the police imprisoned 150 of them for defending themselves. 1892, in Balta and Podalia, seventh day of Pesach, farmers and police uh, joined the forces to attack Jews. They wore them out of the ghetto, but the, the, the Jews managed to keep them out of the ghetto. But those who are, who are outside are, are, are hit, 40 are killed, 170 wounded, 1250 homeless. Okay, notice in most of these cases, it's the police either watching or joining forces. 1899, Nikolaev, Cossacks and the police and the populace attacked Jewish homes on Pesach. Jews hides outside the town and hid, and hid in the graveyard, where they are actually apprehended in the graveyard as desecrated. Um, why is it, by the way, why is it so focused on Pesach? Blood libels and Easter. Okay, so remember that as we come closer to Easter, that's when the blood of the Savior is, is brought up again. And, uh, and oftentimes there was a child who was found dead and the Jews were blamed and the, ra- the masses poured out of church on Easter Sunday to, to kill the Jews. In 1905, in, in Zitmar, <coughs> Attack against the Jew for three days. The Jews fought back, lost 15 lives, including a Russian student who fought for them. 
At the same time in Zudnov, 15 young men went, uh, armed themselves to go and uh, protect the Jews in, uh, in Zitmar, um, and they were, appre- they were caught in Trunov and killed and tortured to death. Ten of them are called Asuri Haruge Malchus in 1905. 1905 in Minsk, there was another one. 1906 in Bialystok, another 80 killed, and police and civilians were part of, the, part of it. This is simply just Nissan to ER in the span of just 30 years in this area of Europe. You can carry on reading beyond these years, before these years, and all the other months of the year to read Imei on of, of what's going on. You know, sometimes we think, you know, the USSR was a terrible place for Jews. It was, but let's not forget the Tsar. He was, he was pretty, pretty uh, rotten himself. Many times the police and the soldiers were, in fact, involved in these. So it was into this, it was into this fray that walks a man by the name of Benjamin Zev, or more to us is Theodor Herzl. Theodor Herzl is bo- born in Belarus. He is born in, in, in Pest, which is a section of the, of the Kingdom of Hungary. And um, he, um, he is born into, into a very uh, well-respected, well-to-do German-assimilated family. And... Uh, he becomes, in fact, he gets a degree in law, he, is, uh, he actually does playwright, and he is a journalist. And he was also confronted with this, this difficulty of anti-Semitism, which was rising and rising again, and unfortunately today we see it hasn't ended. So, he, 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 at various points in his career, he had different, different philosophies. In fact, early on in his career, the philosophy that he understood was that the way to escape anti-Semitism was complete assimilation. If you assimilate completely and utterly, and you become a real part of the society, then ultimately they're not going to hate you because you're part of society. You've got nothing to do with Judaism. And he was basically at that point himself. However, as a reporter, he was a journalist for a particular newspaper, and he covered not the, tri- not the Eastern Europe pogroms, but he moved on to the trial of Dreyfus. Oh, wow. Now, it's interesting that Alfred Dreyfus was in fact a captain... He wasn't an underling, he wasn't a private. He was a captain in the French army. He was accused in the late 1890s of treason, of handing over information to the German consulate in France, and he was imprisoned. And there was a, the trial went backwards and forwards and was opened and reopened numerous times where Dreyfus was on trial. There were other people. It became very clear throughout the trial that, the, in fact, the claims were baseless. And ultimately, in 1906, after incarceration, after being a prisoner for many years, um, there is, um, he was, um, in fact, exonerated. After, this is about 10 years of backwards and forwards and trials. But the interesting thing that Theodor Herzl noticed as covering this, the, entire, the, the entire trial was that the newspaper reports, this is, this is what happened during it. This is one of the, 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 the papers of the time. And the caption at the bottom, leading through these rights of the upraised hands, reads as follows. The actual translation of that is, let me just get the exact, uh, exact translation over here. Um, let me see, I, had, I wrote it down actually. Is Viva France, no, up, up France, it says here, Long live France, long live the army, down with the Jews, death to the traitors. And Theodore Herzl was shocked, because you see, we can understand the backwards Europe of the eastern side. We can understand those backwards Russians who are, none, who are barbaric and farmers and, and, you know, and they can't think anything more between the first cup of vodka to the second cup of vodka and they kill in between. We understand them. But a, an educated person like us, an educated people like us, a captain in the army, we should be impervious. 
Nonetheless, this was, this was a shock to, 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 uh, to Theodore Herzl and became his life mission. And he realized, he wrote in 1896, a book called 1895, Dar Judenstadt, the state of the Jews. And he wrote this book, which became wildly popular in most cases, popular in a good way, in numerous places, popular in a very bad way. People opposed him. He said that the only way to escape anti-Semitism in the philosophy that he had is to create a state for the Jews. And he founded the first Zionist Congress, 1897, and, uh, and it was in Basel, it was held in Basel, in fact it wasn't held in Munich or in England because of a lot of political um, considerations. And he brought together, he was, certainly wasn't the first, there was Chalvei and there were many other groups at the time, there were religious Zionists, there were cultural Zionists, there were numerous other groups. He pulled them all together to create the first Zionist Congress to talk about these things. And it was very fascinating. He, he, to a certain degree, he wrote after the first conference, this was in 1898, he wrote in his diary, his personal diary, that in a word... I won't share this with the public, but within five years, and certainly 50 years, everybody will recognize that I created the Jewish state. Interestingly enough, 50 years and two months later was the establishment of the state of Israel. In a certain strange, um, semi-prophetic statement of, of Herzl. Um, and it was among this time that he, that, he, that, he, that he went around from world leader to world leader. He met with, in 1898, he met with Wilhelm II in Israel to talk about the Palestine issue. Could the Germans offer place? He, in 1901, he met with Sultan Abu Dalamid II, who was the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, which was crumbling at the time. He, in fact, offered the Ottoman Empire to pay off their debt for a certain area in Palestine. That was his, that was his cheshbon. And he was refused. Um, in 1902 and 1903, he met with the British High Command. We'll get back to that in a second. 1903, he met, attempted to meet with Pope Pius X, um, and, which was an idea broached in the Sixth um, Congress. And interestingly enough, Cardinal Raphael Merida, Merida de Fala, I think that's how you pronounce it, ordained, to quote, the church's policy explained that um, on such uh, non-possumous, on such matters, decreeing that as long as the Jews denied the divinity of their saviour, the Catholics would make, not make a declaration in their favour. Uh, you know, the anti-Semitism ran very deep. And these were the things that Theodore Herzl was doing. Rallying support, political support, all his connections. He was a very well-respected man to be able to create a state for the Jews. And it was in amongst this that in 1903, in the Zionist Congress... Oh, and this is what... Oh, so before the Zionist Congress in 1903... There was a famous, famous pogrom called the Kishnev pogrom in 1903, where uh, once again it was Akron Shal Pesach, Easter, Easter Sunday, the people left, the masses left church, there were three days of killing, raping, pillaging, 2,000 Jews left homeless, 49 dead, hundreds wounded, hundreds raped. And what was interesting about the po- beginning of the pogroms now was that actually this was the first time where media was able to be used for the world to realize what was going on. In fact, there's a New York Times article about the Kishinev program at the time that was going on. Here are some of the young victims that are killed. You can see the, the, the devastation of the riots. There are pictures of what went on in Kishinev. And this again shocked the world. There were poems written about this, what was going on to the, Jew, um, to the Jews. It was in the wake of this that Theodore Herzl had a meeting with, or had, was, was able to set up a meeting with the colonial secretary. That's a very big thing in the English in the English government, because remember that this time, England is still a colonial empire. They still have, they still actually have South Africa at this point in time. They've won two Anglo-Boer wars. They still have India. They have colonies all around the world and in Africa, and a proposal was made. And this proposal was taken by Herzl to the Sixth Sixth Congress in 1903, and it was proposed the following. The idea was what was called the Uganda Proposal. Actually, it's not really Uganda. It's actually East Africa. You see, 
in the side of Africa, there was a, there's the area of Uganda, and there's what's called British East Africa, which is today Kenya. And what was the offering that was made by Joseph Chamberlain, that was the, the colonial secretary, the father of Neville Chamberlain. Right? You know, in politics, things you know, don't, don't generally work in areas of certain succession. And uh, they offered a certain territory along the coast, which would have a mountain area and coastal area, which would have a, be able to house enough for a million Jews. And the British would gra- grant them colonial space to create a state for the Jews in East Africa, British East Africa, which would be a place of safe haven. It was directly following in the wake of the Kishinev pogrom, which shook the world, and the, and, and the realization that uh, Europe was no longer a safe place for the Jews. And this is the proposal that he proposed to the Congress. Fascinatingly enough, the, um, this was, a, uh, this was a, a matter of great and vociferous debate, because... Um, what, what, the, the, the proposal, on the one hand, proposed something which actually gave safety to Jews immediately. If you're thinking about the amount of pogroms that were going on, the amount of lives lost and to be lost, including the Holocaust, one can, one can imagine how many lives this may have saved. This, um, moreover, it may have actually been something which would have been left less embroilment to the Arabs. There would be less of the issue of their holy sites and being close to the Arabs. There might have been an acceptance of Jewish statehood before we could get to the next stage. Theodor Herzl was not leaving behind Zionism. He wasn't leaving behind Palestine. He was thinking this will be a stopover before we get there, but at least we'll be able to have safety in the meantime. Those who opposed it said, well, look, if we're going to spend all our funding to create a state over there, where's the funding going to be to move there afterwards to Palestine? Would all the Jews go? What about the Africans? The Africans would have the same territorial complaints as the Palestinians, or the, well, those days they weren't Palestinians, as the local Arabs would have been. Would the nation, nations have been pacified and left us there? These are the, and the, there was an uproar in the conference. What I'd like you to do, if you could, for just a moment, is um, if you could just... Well, let's do a vote here. If you were in the National Congress, if you were in the Zionist Congress of, um, of that year, if you could just do the following. Text to the name Yaakov T885. That will enter into the conference. And then you can vote yes, no, abst- or abstention. Okay? You can do it. It's a live poll right here, right here as we're speaking. Okay? It'll... It, it, it'll uh, it'll say, ask if you want to use data. It doesn't it, it uses like a, a text message like on a WhatsApp. Okay, everybody's welcome to join to join whether they would vote for or not. And the question is, remember, the lives versus the ideals and all the considerations there therein. Okay, this is the, the one time you can ignore the Schulz um, policy. Um, oh, that's that's very noble of you, Moish. Okay, so you text to 37607 is the number you're dialing to. To enter is Yaakov T885. And then, once you do that, you can do A for yes, B for no, and C for abstention. Okay? Yes? Was Germany still in East Africa during World War II? No. What? Was Germany still right below in East Africa during World War II? I don't know. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure. That's a good question, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. One second. One second. It was available last night. There we go. Okay, so somebody, somebody has voted. It's open now. It's open now. It's live, as you can see. Okay, we have we have 17% for no. We have so far 80 something percent for yes. We have 83% yes, 17% no. You can abstain if you want as well.
We'll leave another 45 seconds for voting. Once you get in, you can... Okay, we're getting a... It's very tense. You can imagine what it, what it must have been like in, in the Zionist <laughs> National Congress at the time. <laughs> okay, we're going to close in another 30 seconds. Getting, getting tough over here. Wow. Going backwards and forwards. Okay, you're welcome to carry on in the meantime. Welcome to carry on in the meantime. That would be a stopover. So that's what he believed. He believed that this was an emergency oper- operation. Okay, let's hold it over here. So, oh, last minute, I bet the ballot is getting closer. Let's do a quick, a quick recap. This is very close, ladies and gentlemen. We have over here. This is getting very close. We have in favour of the Uganda proposal, 53%. Those who say no is 47%. Interestingly enough, the real numbers. The real numbers for the Zionist Congress in 1903 were 295 in favor, 178 in, um, in um, disagreeing, not allowing, and there are 114 abstentions, which means a majority won, but not by a majority of people who wanted it. Okay? Which allowed Theodore Herzl, which allowed Theodore Herzl, therefore, to make... To, make, to, set up the, uh, the, the, uh, to set up a party to go and investigate the territory. However, it was so, it was so tumultuous at this point in time, um, there, was so mu- there was so much of an uproar at this vote that in fact hundreds of delegates from all the different places left the conference in the middle of the conference. They, they marched out. They were, so, they were so shaken by this. The next day, Theodore Herzl welcomed everybody back in and in a famous move, he stood at the, he welcomed Iraq and he stood at the podium and he lifted his right hand and he said, And in a certain sense, the vote of the Uganda, the East Africa proposal died, even though, even though he tried for the next, the next year, because remember he died in 1904. Some people say that the, the stress of this decision itself was what killed him. Hard to know. Um, he was a young man in his 40s. Um, but at the 1905, it was voted completely down and the East Africa proposal never <coughs> continued. Very fascinating milestone in history, which actually threatened at breaking and splitting the Zionist movement within a decade of its formation. And he realized that it was so divisive that if he'd continued to push it, he would have lost the unity of the Zionist movement. And therefore, he sacrificed this plan to a certain degree in order not to, uh, to split the Zionist movement. And what I'd like to ask you is the following. Is to, let's consider it ourselves. If we were in that Zionist Congress... And, you know, I'm sure they would have allowed cell phones for the votes if they'd had them. But it makes us think, what would we have said? You know, we have the 2020 vision of, you know, hindsight. And we see what happened in Europe. You know, but the what-ifs. But forget the what-ifs. What is ideologically, ideologically, what would we have said? So what I'd like to do with you in the next few minutes is to delve into seven layers. At that time, they had no... Oh, so there, there, were, there was an allow, allowance to go to Palestine, but they needed an area, first of all, for greater, we'll call it actual, we'll call it a Jewish homeland state area, because remember, at this point in time, it's controlled by the Ottomans, with a lot of the nations of Europe eyeing it over here. There were limits on the visas. The British were already, allow, were already limiting the amount of people going. They needed to have some country to say, Jews can have sovereignty over here, because it wasn't controlled by Jews. The Ottomans really controlled it, and the First World War was about to d- divide up the Ottoman Empire into Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, all the different countries. Yeah. Can I ask a question? I mean, not to want to know why people voted no, 
know, but people that did vote know over here, like, you could, no one really stripped away the bias of knowing, not knowing what happened in Europe. Correct. So why, knowing what would have happened in Europe, why would you vote no? Okay, why, why would you vote? Okay, so, interestingly enough, in this perspective, I, I, this is exactly what I'd like to do with you, is I'd like to, to delve in with you into seven layers of why we have a Jewish state. Seven layers of why it's important to us and to appreciate it from that perspective. Let's start at the very beginning. What, what Level number one. Excuse me, what percentage of Jews had this proposal gone through, do you think would have gone through? Uh, right. That's a good question. You see, part of the people who opposed at the time said, let's say we set it up. Who's going to go there and become sugar and, and corn farmers? That's what the question is. Is it going to be successful? Will they even go once we've invested all the Jewish funds of Europe? Let's go a little further. They had already, after 1920, they had Israel to go to, and very few people went when they could have gone. You're right. So that comes, coming speaking back to Chaim's point, is that they did have an allowance once there was the Balfour Declaration. We'll get there in a second. But that did not to the same degree. It wasn't a state yet. Nonetheless, let's follow three. Uh, what, I, what I like to do is, is to think with you each of these layers, what they are. I'm not going to label them until we've actually thought about them. Now, dear mentioned Rav Soloveitchik, we spent a little bit of time last year looking at this piece. This is called Odido Fake. Rabbi Shechter spoke about this at length yesterday. This is what he calls the fifth of the knocks of what he felt was the knock of the state of Israel. And this is what he says. He says, the fifth knock of the beloved, that's Hashem knocking on our door, on our tent door, is perhaps the most important of all. For the first time in history in our exile, divine providence has surprised, surprised our enemies with the sensational discovery that Jewish blood is not free for the taking. It is not Hefker. If anti-Semites wish to, do, to describe this phenomenon as an eye for an eye, so be it. We will agree with them. If we wish to heroically defend our national historical existence, we must at times interpret the verse, an eye for an eye, literally. How many eyes did we lose during the course of our bitter exile because we did not return blow for blow? This t the time has come for us to fulfill the law of an eye for an eye, in its plain, simple sense. I'm certain that everyone knows, knows me, knows that I'm a believer of the oral law. And consequently, that I do not doubt the verse refers to monetary compensation in accordance with the halakhic interpretation. However, in regard to the Nasser or the Mufti, I would demand that we interpret the phrase an eye for an eye in a strictly literal sense, as referring to the removal of the concrete actual eye. Pay no attention to the fine phrases of well-known Jewish assimilationists or socialists who continue to adhere to their outworn ideologies and think that they are living in Bialystok, Minsk or Brisk of 1905, who publicly declaim that it is forbidden for the Jews to take revenge at any time, any place and under all circumstances. Vanity of vanities. Revenge is forbidden when it serves no purpose. However, if, taken, if taking revenge we raise ourselves to the, the plane of self-defense, then it becomes the elementary right of man qua man to avenge the wrongs um, inflicted. Upon him, upon him. What is what is the view of the state according this <coughs> idea? What's the, the the value of the state according to Soloveitchik is? It's a safe haven. First level is before we get any further is we need to have a place where we can be safe. A place where we can. Whereas when when the pogroms come and the police stand by or join the forces, who's going to protect us? When you go back to the 1600s, we talk about the Chilmoniki massacres. Where were the Polish? Where was the government? Where they, did, uh, they weren't able or weren't interested in helping us. And that was the history of hundreds of years of Europe. We need to have such a place. Number one, and by the way, if this is the only reason for a state, then Uganda is totally fine. Right? If this is all there is. Let's take a, there's a dangerous side to this. There's a dangerous side to this, um, to this particular idea. Just coming back to, to remind you, let's see if we can get the actual video going. 
Um, this is what is called the Cairo speech of President Obama. One second. The sound is... Um, let me just get some of this. Let's see What is Obama saying? Let's think about this for a second. Well, let's think about what President Obama has said to in Cairo in his first 100 days in presidency. What is the claim to the Jewish state rooted in a Jewish history, a tragic Jewish history, which is undeniable? What is he saying? Our right to the land of Israel is the Holocaust. A very dangerous, dangerous way to look at the state. Because if that's all it is, then you're going to have a very different perspective when you're trading and you're trying to work out peace. Very dangerous if this is all you see the Jewish state to be as a safe haven. Let's take it one step further. Famous quote by David Ben-Gurion, first Prime Minister of Israel. I remember hearing this actually first when I was in a taxi in Israel. We were talking about it and the taxi driver told me this. I found it in an article. He says, we will know we have become a normal country when Jewish thieves and Jewish prostitutes conduct their business in Hebrew. <laughs> That's what he wanted. I remember the taxi driver telling this to me. And actually, just four years ago, I remember there was actually a story that was in the newspaper. There was a, a person who came in for a bank robbery, and you know you don't want to create a scene. So he slipped a note to the teller, rather than making the whole bank aware of it, and he pressed the button, and, the ba- and it said, give me all your money. And on the top of the note in the right-hand corner was, B'siyad <laughs> Dishmaya. What, what does David Ben-Gurion say? That the, what is the value of the state? It's not just a safe haven. What does he, what does he want the state for? This is more than a... He wants to have a land like other nations. Let us Jews, let's Jews be like other nations. Right? The Poles have Poland, the Litvaks have Lithuania, the Ugandans have Uganda. Let us have a normal country. Let us just be like other people of the world rather than an exiled nation. Now that's fine. The only problem is we actually have seen issues with this before. And let's go back for a moment. Comes back to Sefer Shmuel. The people said to Shmuel Navi, They said, let's have a king. And Shmuel Navi is very upset. Why is Shmuel upset? Pasha said, Torah, Torah tells us explicitly. You're going to get a get coming to Eretz Yisrael and you're going to say, Simon and Melech. So what's the problem? What's the problem? Says the Josh Zaran. Oh, so you know, it wasn't a personal thing. Hashem says, they, 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 they disgraced me. Says the Josh Zaran. Why would they want it? They wanted to be like all the other nations. If they just said, look, practically we need a king. We need to have a military leader. We need to have somebody we can rely on. There's a legacy. That's fine. That's what the Joshua Zaran says. It's, it's very interesting. Here they want a state of government. They want a system of leadership. Nonetheless, it's wrong because they wanted it for the reasons of let it be that we are just like everybody else. So on the one hand, yes, he's right. But at the same time, definitely not right. That's not the way to ask for a state. Let's think about it. Safe haven. 
a nation like all others. Let's delve, delve a, little, a little deeper <coughs> into this concept. This is 1917 data. Dear Lord Rothschild, what is this, folks? This is the Balfour Declaration, 1917. I have as much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's Covenant the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His uh, cabinet, by the way, it's just wonderful to read the, the, the English of the time. His Majesty's government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Remember, why, now, why is 1917 so critical? Because this is the ending of the First World War, where the Ottoman Empire is being cut up, and who gets the Palestine mandate is England. So they have the rights to it. And will use the best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights of the political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. And this is signed by uh, Balfour. Now, it's interesting to... This is the Balfour Declaration, extremely famous. It's beautiful to actually see it in writing. What is he saying our rights to the land are? The word he, call, the word he uses is national homelands. You see, this is a little deeper. This is not about safe haven. That wasn't why he's giving it to us. And it wasn't because of a cultural we should be like the rest of the folks. He's saying something else. He's saying it's not just about the present, it's about the past. And this is, this is incredibly meaningful. This is a very special moment because here's, here's a few examples. Let's take the, this, this, the idea of the historical homeland. Let's take the, the, this over here. This is a stone which is found and it is dated back to the times of the first base of military, which is a stone which inscribes where the trumpeters would stand when blowing the trumpets in the base of Migdash. <coughs> you know what that means? Despite what UNESCO has to say about it, we were there. <laughs> we were there. You walk on that ground, there was the same ground that the prophets walked upon. That the, the, the ground is infused with our history. More than that, let's take an example. Rav Moshe ben Nachman, Nachmanides, living in Spain, who is now, who is nominated to, unwillingly to debate Pablo Cristiani in a debate in Aragon, and he debated him, won the debate, when contested afterwards, published the transcript of the debate, which we have today in the Kisar Ramban, you can read it, fascinating. And because he published it, he was exiled. He went to Israel. When he arrived in Israel, there's a few addendums that he has to his Pirush in the Torah. They relate to two very interesting things. One is about the Shekel HaKodesh. He has a debate about Rashi. What's the, what's the, what is the weight of the Shekel HaKodesh? What is the Shekel? There's a big debate between the French and the Spanish, or understanding it. And he says the following. In this, is a, this is not in most of the recent Rambans. It's only in the Torah's Chaim Ramban that you can actually find this end note. What was that? Oh, the Oscar has it now as well. Fantastic. The Shuval doesn't, because this is, an, oh, this is a new added footnote. That we are able to find in later texts. Hashem blessed me that I arrived in Akko, the ancient port of Akko. I found a coin which had engravings upon it. On the one hand, was a, was a staff like a, uh, which was which was um, flowering. Um, there's a plate on the other side. There's writing around it. And he says, and I wasn't able to read it, so I had to show it to the locals. Why couldn't the Ramban read it? It was the old Ksav. He couldn't read it, so he showed it to the, to the people who knew the Akkadian <coughs> languages. They read it, and read it immediately. Going to the very interesting Sugya. One side said this is the Shekel, the other side says this is the holy, of a holy Jerusalem. 
The one is the staff of Aaron with the with it, or its flowering mitzura sheni tzintzenes aman. The other plate was the container of the man. History. And he says it comes up to the weight of Rabbeinu Shlomo, of Rashi. Meaning we had a debate. It was theory. He was living in northern France. I was living in Spain. I didn't understand it. We're theorizing based on Psukim. I'm here. I see it. I feel it. I weigh it. It's historical. Do you see what's happened over here? What an amazing moment. You're living history. This is more, this is more than simply a safe haven. This is more than a nation like our eyes. Another example of the Ramban. This one is famous. Kever Rachel. He has all Machlaik as Rashi, where it is. Then he goes on in the, in the continuing his, his parish. Asher Shazachis, Yabasan Yerushalayim. Shevach Lakel Atova Meitzid. Ra'isi Ba'enai. It's so close to Jerusalem. All what I was saying about Od Kivras Eris is wrong because I see it with my eyes. I walk the ground. See what's happening over here? The state of Israel isn't simply just, oh well, you know, we, you know it's good to have a, 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 a place. There's something else. There's a historical connection. We're living it. We're breathing it. This is, this, is a, this is a level where no matter how far down you dig in Uganda, <laughs> You're not going to find it. This, this level already reaches a little further. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go further into into this into this um, into this um, th- thought. Over here, here is a here is here is a further thought thought over here. Many Gemaras. One example. Amr Bizeira, Barbasra, Kufnun Chesam Beis, Shmamina, Avira Deretz Yisrael Machkim. There's a halachic debate. Rabbi Zeira, interesting is Rabbi Zeira because if you go through the Gemaras, the Gemara in Exodus tells us that Rab, uh, he, in some places he called Rab Zeira and in some places he called Rabbi Zeira. What's the difference? So the Gemara says that in fact he did Aliyah in the middle. He moved to Eretz Yisrael and he became called Rebbe Zerah in the middle and he's the person who can say this. Rebbe Zerah says, Aviro de Eretz Yisrael, the, the heir of Israel is Machkim. It, 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 there's, there's a certain, it, it makes you wiser. There's a certain, there's something in the air which is, which is more than simply or the air that you breathe in the diaspora. That's, 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 that's remarkable. It has a lack of implications. The, the Pasuk in Yeshaya, I was just learning last week um, with a few guys, Perek the last parak of Sanhedrin in, in the Gemara. It says, quoting Apostle Yishayahu, Yichyu meisachah nivlasachah nivlasi yikumun. Talking about tchias ameisim. Your dead will arise. Nivlasi, the corpses will yikumun. They'll wake up, the sleepers of the dust. Beautiful description of tchias ameisim. One of the explicit psukim about tchias ameisim, whether it mean nationally or the ameisim yicheskel. Rashim Sanhedrin says, what is the, why is the pronoun meisachah, your dead? It should be Yichyu Mesim. Why is it your dead? Says Rashi, Yichyu Mesra. The Mesim should be Eretz Yisrael Yichyu. Why is it yours? Who's yours? It means locally. There's a, the, 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 in, the, in the hierarchy of things, we will take the Mesim be first. Eretz Yisrael. You know, people buy plots in Eretz Yisrael. Not everybody's able to, but we will buy. The, there, is a, there is a stage of Tchias Mesim which will occur earlier in Eretz Yisrael. We mean to say, what, 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 what is this, this level of, of appreciation of? What's, why is the state important to us? Why is Eretz Yisrael important to us according to this? This is, this is more than, these ideas are more than simply the idea that it's historical. What is it? This is the Holy Land. There's, right, this, this, there's something connecting us to, it is actually different. You walk, every four hours you walk in Eretz Yisrael is a mitzvah. The air is different. The ground is different. There's something else, there's something more than simply when you walk and you hack in, in another place, when you hack in another place, not, in, in the diaspora. Not simply historical. Intrinsically. After debates, intrinsically based on yesterday. Mm-hmm. Let's go a little further. More than this. Fascinating, fascinating description. Good morning, Saita. 
Why did Moshe Rabbeinu want to enter into Israel? Look, there's a lot of great fruits. You can go to Machina Yehud, you can get great prices. They bake, the, they bake the roglach fresh in the morning. The smells are unbelievable. Was that why Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to go into Israel? Or he wanted to do, um, enjoy and be satiated from his good, which is, by the way, interesting. I'll leave you the question, homework. Why is it that those are the terms we use in our Birkas Alamichia? Meaning those are the things we say in praise of Eretz Yisrael. But the Gemara is almost saying, like, why would he just want that? Fascinating why this is, becomes the terminology of Abrocha. This is a great question. Meaning, if you want to know what the importance of Eretz Yisrael, ask the person who was dying to go there. The person who prayed to God to the point that God said to him, Enough. Hashem says, No more. Don't pray anymore. Why did he want to go in? What was so much, what meant to so much to Moshe Rabbeinu? There's so many mitzvahs which can only be fulfilled in Israel. I want to go in so that I can fulfill them myself. That nobody else is going to do it on my behalf. I didn't just enable people. I didn't just allow people to get in. I did it myself. What mitzvahs is he talking about? Shmita, what else? Trimmers and masters. You go, you go to the marketplace. You go to a store. You don't know if they're taking trimmers and masters. You buy an orange. You can't just eat it. You put out a sitter and you say, I'm going to mafresh the trimmer to the top and the miser to the bottom. There's, there's a whole procedure over here. Right? What else? You're a farmer. We used to live, when I was in Karen we across the fields, beautiful fields, look out the window in the morning. Sunflower season, every, uh, sunflowers in every direction you could see. They change the fields. Beautiful. You, 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 when you harvest those fields and you harvest fruit fields, what do you do? You leave a corner. You, you leave a bundle in the field. That's shikha. There are halachas. It governs every aspect of your agricultural life. Says Moshe Rabbeinu, I want to get in for that. How is this different from what we discussed up to now? It's not a safe haven. It's not a nation like all others. It's not, it's not even a holy land. What is it over here? It's not historical. He's saying that over here it's the land of commandments. That I'm enabled to be able to live differently, to perform differently, to behave differently, not just experience differently. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu wanted. Let's take it even further. Over here. This is, this, is, uh, this is where we, we get to the in, interactions of Avram Avinu. When Avram Avinu, Hashem says a remarkable thing. Avram, you've been traveling for a long time. Look around you. This is yours. By light, he tells him again, look in every direction. Whatever you think, you, everything you see, it's yours. He says, before even we talk about Egypt, before we talk about exile, Hashem says, I'm going to give you this entire land. It's interesting to note that Avram Avinu's entire life of tests is framed by the phrase, What's, what's, the, what's the, the, according to most, the starting test of Abraham Avinu is? Lech Lecha. Hashem says is that you're going to walk away from your land. You're going to walk away from your birthplace. You're going to walk away from your identity. Where to? Where are you going? He's going to the land that Hashem's going to show him. He doesn't even know where it is. That's his movement to Israel. Isn't it interesting that according to most Mephoshim, what's the last of the tests? Some of the Mephoshim say it's actually Chayasara. But, the, right? but if you remember the Mephoshim also say, what was the last one? Akadis Yitzchak. Akadis Yitzchak. What was the phrase that introduces Akadis Yitzchak? Once again, Lech Lecha in Eretz It's the same Lech Lecha. The beginning and the ending of Avram's greatest, greatest challenges were Lech Lecha. In both of those cases, he was traveling towards a destination unknown. Where was that destination first, Eretz Yitzchak, and then? Karamoria, to the epicenter of where it was. What does this show us about Israel? This is more than commandments. This is more than a holy land. What is the land to us? More than that, Inheritance. this is called the promised land. 
This means to say that when we look at the land of Israel, this isn't just anything. It isn't just a place which has got great features. You know, it's like, you know, when you're reading the, the brochure, you know, you know, fantastic, you can do Schmitter here. Like all the great things. No, it's not just that. It's not just, wow, look how many features this land is. We got it because God says you're going to get it. It was Avram's eternal travels that got him there. What an amazing thing. Aram's life was spent walking towards the unknown, the unknown being Eretz Israel. That was his entire life, was Lech Lecha, towards the place, to the epicenter of this place. Moreover, let's take one step further. The last step, step is, if you think about books, you know, when you read a textbook, textbooks are generally structured in the following way. They'll tell you the basics, you know, so like I remember when I skipped, I did 8th and ninth grade together in the, in, the, um, in the time. So we did two years of science in one. So I remember the, the beginning of the, t- the, the textbook said in the eighth grade was all things consist of matter, or uh, all things consist of matter, and then the, uh, the ninth grade textbook said all things consist of matter, which can be divided into three phases: um, liquid, solid, liquid, and, and gas. You know that was the addition of ninth grade. It was it really wasn't too much of a, a difficulty. But what's the point of, the, of the, how the textbook begins? The textbook is giving us the building blocks because now I can talk about oh well now we're talking about gaseous stages with the movement from gas. To liquid, there's a release of energy. The molecules operate differently. Why can I talk about those things? Because I told you the basic building blocks at the beginning of the textbook. So when you look at the Torah, the Torah should be telling us the most important fundamentals at the beginning, right? It stands to reason that the textbook of, of life, of our history, of everything we do, should have the most important things first. So let's go back to the first Rashi in the Torah. Rashi asks a very important question, that is, Horatius. <laughs> he, says, he says the following, Omar Yisrach. He quotes Rabbi Yisak. Uh, some people say potentially this is, this is the father of Rashi. There's a lot of interesting history in this. He says... Rashi says, the Torah shouldn't have started here. The Torah should have started where? Parashas boy, HaKadosh Zelochem. Why? It's the first, it's national, we just became a nation. This is, this is the first communal mitzvah. Let's get to business. Why do we have the whole book of Barashas and the whole Exodus story up till then? So as Rashi says, you know, we, we would think, well, you know, we need a context, we need to understand where we are and who we are. Rashi says something else. He says, um, he says, Hashem wanted to show the, the, act, the strength of his actions to his nation. To give them the, 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 the inheritance of the nations. If the nations of the world will say, you're bandits, you're, you took our land. If. It's a big if, right? <laughs> you took the nations of these poor victims of these seven nations of Canaanites who are living peacefully by themselves. So then in that case, then, then the whole land is a God's God created it. He gave it to the people who He wanted. He gave it to them in His will. God chose to give it to us. And therefore, what's the reason why the Torah starts over here? Is to get to the fact that Avram was promised it. To get to the, the, all the machinations necessary to understand why we got to Egypt in the first place and why we merited the land in the end. Now, I want to ask you a question. Let's go back a few weeks. So UNESCO re- re- releases its historical report, which, you know, you, you, the mind boggles that people who even call themselves academics could even sign anything so atrocious. And they, now d- they, d- they deny historical historical connections to a certain degree, to a past a certain point of Jewish connections to the Temple Mount. You, you, you can't imagine. It's like, you know, we've escaped Europe. It's, Europe has not escaped us. In fact, Netanyahu invited them to a conference uh, on the history of the Temple Mount. They, they declined. Um, 
And UNESCO pulls out this, 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 uh, this resolution, which has been ratified by a majority of the countries. And um, so you know what we should do? We should walk into UNESCO, burst in, pull out this Rashi, whip out the Rashi and say, folks, look at the Pasuk. Look, the Pasuk is explicit. Why do we have Barashas? You see? You see? So who's listening? Who's listening? So I think the Rashi, Rashi is telling us something different. Rashi is not telling us that we need to tell UNESCO this Rashi. Rashi. What Rashi is doing when he quotes the Pasuk is a very unique thing. Who is the object of the Pasuk? Says, Koyach Maso, the strength of his actions, Higid Laamoy. Higid Laamoy. He told his nation, because folks, if we don't appreciate, if we don't appreciate that all of creation was to understand, to explain, to give context to the fact that this is our land. It's not just a safe haven. It's not just a cultural land. If we don't have that, then the rest of the world won't believe it either. It starts at home. What Rashi says is the way you start reading the Torah is when we believe it. And maybe, just maybe, when we, and think about this, we take it for granted, we think in our camps, we're the majority. Folks, we're in the minority. Read the statistics. If more than 50% of Jews in America believe that there wouldn't have been too much of a loss if Israel wouldn't exist. That's shocking. We need to understand that it is our destiny. This is more than simply, this is more simply than everything we discussed. It's more than a safe haven. It's more than a cultural place. It's more than a historical place. It's more than a land of commandments. It's more than a land which is holy or promised. It is the land of our ultimate mission. If we get that right, then maybe the rest of the world peeks in and understands it. Jonathan Sachs once said, and I think it's a tremendous, tremendous truth, and that is, is that non-Jews are embarrassed, or Jews are embarrassed about being Jewish. And they are proud of Jews who are proud about being Jewish. And part of that starts with our mission of living Israel. And the question therefore I ask in this year is not why not Uganda, but why Israel? Thank you very much. Thank you.